There's never a man who looked me between the eyes and seen a good day out of words. So says Long John Silver from Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. Most would probably agree that there seems to be something, something out there that's lurking around looking for us, working against us every day, strategically trying to place obstacles in our path, trying to harm us. There's that cold that always comes right about the time in the middle of the work week where things are just so stressful. There's that check engine light that comes on right as you get that letter from the DMV in the mail saying it's time to smog your vehicle. There's that proverbial Lego on the floor that seems to find its way to your barefoot in the middle of the night. Opposition, trouble, problems, challenges, threats, whatever it is you want to call them. They are out there, and they are part of life. In this world, you will have trouble. Expect trouble. Expect opposition. It goes with the territory. There is no home. There is no job. There is no marriage and no church where you will experience an ideal, trouble-free existence. And yet we're looking for it. We know it's, it's, it's got to be out there. there there's got to be a better existence than the one I'm in right now. There's got to be such a place. We look on to the, to the horizon. We look across the fence. We look across the street, over to those greener pastures. And yet we fail to realize that they are riddled with crevasses and craters and bogs and beasts lying in wait. And it's true in the church. Peter tells us that there is a predator on the loose. There's a menace. There's a threat that warns, like Hamlet, I'll make a ghost of him that lets me. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Oh, it's out there. We began our series in Acts a while back, several months ago now, and we saw the formation of this divinely created organization as God's Spirit called people to faith in Jesus Christ and made his dwelling within them. He brought together a new organism for his own possession and purposes. They would be witnesses of the hope of Jesus, beginning in Jerusalem, yes, and then moving outward to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then we saw the Spirit of God came, came upon his people on the day of Pentecost. And there was this immediate, explosive growth. They went from like 120 disciples to 3,000 in less than a day. And members of this new church, they devoted themselves, didn't they? To the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which is communion, and to prayer. And they were filled with and they, they began selling their possessions and sharing with one another, meeting each other's needs. And, and it says in Acts 2.47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Things were off to a pretty promising start. But it didn't take long before this freshly planted family of believers came under threat. As exciting as it must have been to see these things, this thing sprout up and really take off, not 
everyone was happy about this new people of God. In particular, there was that roaring lion that Peter talked about. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I like the way the New Living Translation, which is a little bit more like a paraphrase, puts this. It says, stay alert. That's language I get. (laughs) Watch out for your great enemy. What should God's people be watching out for? A lion? A peg-legged pirate who's out there passing out black spots? (laughs) Maybe we should be on the lookout for the multiplicity of tactics of that crafty agent of chaos. We've seen a couple of them in the few short chapters we've walked through here in our study of Acts. And we'll refresh our memories just now as we get back into this. The first tactic that we saw was this tactic of persecution. Right after the church took off, Peter and John, they were going up to the temple and they encountered a man who was paralyzed and begging them for something. They didn't have what this guy was looking for. They didn't have silver. They didn't have gold. But what they had was so much better. And that's exactly what they gave him. They said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he did. Not only did he walk, but it says he was leaping and he was praising God and causing all kinds of excitement. Imagine the amazement and the dumbfoundedness of the crowd. People couldn't believe their eyes. And Peter begins telling them that this is all the result of the power of of Jesus. And that's when the first threat of persecution rose up against the church. Temple officials, they meet Peter and John, and they arrest them. And they command them never to speak or teach in that name again. What was the enemy hoping to accomplish? Well, if they couldn't shut down the work that God was actually doing, the enemy certainly wanted to intimidate it. He wanted to crush their enthusiasm for sharing the good news with fear. Fear can be a very compelling motivator, can it not? Because of fear, we tend to avoid speaking up or or maybe even doing what is right. Just a case in point, even though parents know that they need to set boundaries for their children... Maybe it's, it's how much TV their kids are going to watch or uh, locking down a cell phone or a tablet or speaking into their child's relationships or any number of other things. Rather than do that, they are tempted to, to let their kids do, do whatever they want. One of the reasons so often is because we're, we're afraid of turning our children away. Because of fear, we might be tempted to go with the flow. Try to not make waves, maybe even join in with our peers uh, on that joke or whatever it is that they're doing, even though we know that doing so would not be honoring to the Lord. Fear can prevent leaders from leading, followers from following, fellow Christians from letting that guard down and entrusting their faults, their failures, their struggles with a few close, trusted believers so that they might begin to build each other up and pray for one another. Fear stops that all the time. It's often fear that will keep us from seizing the opportunity, sharing Jesus with a person who's just across the table from us. What if they don't like it? What if they think I'm weird? 
What if it puts my position in jeopardy? What if it has a, a negative effect on my finances, my relationships, my comfort, my ability to, to move up to the ladder? In the case of church, maybe we're thinking, what if this turns people off? What if they get upset? What if they decide to, 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 to go, go somewhere else? What if someone on the outside, they look, they look at us and they think we're, we're weird or backward? What if they take away our tax exemption status? Thank God the early church did not give way to fear, knowing full well what they were called by God to do when Peter and John were released. What did they do? They immediately go to their fellow believers. They acknowledged and praised God for his sovereignty, and they prayed all the more for boldness. Let us, let us go out again, Lord. Let us go out again. Persecution didn't work. Second tactic of the enemy was, was sin, sin in the church. Some people, they were selling off their possessions, as we mentioned, giving the money to the apostles so that the apostles could distribute the money to those who were in real need. Ananias and Sapphira, they concocted a plan to make a really good impression on everyone around them and at the same time pad their wallets. And so they voluntarily sell off some property and then go to the church and basically say, Here, here's the money. Implying, here's, here's all of it. When they were really holding back a portion of it. And someone might argue, is that really a big deal? I mean, they're giving to the church, aren't they? What a, what a generous thing to do. They're meeting needs. So what if they told a little white lie? Well, as we talked about last week, God cares deeply about the purity of his people. They're, they're to be holy as he is holy. When God's people are infected with, with compromise and content to let it go unaddressed, their, their ability to faithfully represent him, well, that suffers. Their desire to, to worship and serve him, well, that's stifled. Their effectiveness in, in loving each other and growing in Christ's likeness, that's thwarted. When that, when that happens, peace within the church, it, it erodes and divisions form. And those on the outside looking in get a false impression of who Jesus is. Persistent, unaddressed, tolerated sin in the church, it's a threat that will cripple God's people. It could have brutally impacted the church here, the early church here in Acts. But thanks to God's intervention and, frankly, the obedience of Peter to call sin out, Satan's threat fails again. And some might think that the, the discipline given to Ananias and Sapphira, these two, these two people dropped dead. You would think that what, that would have had a negative impact on church growth, People are going to freak out. They're going to start flying the coop here. They're going to flap those little wings on out of here. But no, once again, the church grows. Acts 5.14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And that brings us to our passage here in Acts 6, 1 to 7, the third tactic, division. What happens to a church when it's plagued with infighting and internal tension 
And people who, instead of loving each other, look at each other with suspicion and criticism and anger. What happens when, when leadership can't agree on anything and is so busy trying to calm people down, put out fires and diffuse situations and keep the peace that they can't do the things that God has actually called them to do, those primary things that God's called them to do. You know what happens? The witness of the church, it's love for God and God's people and the ability to make disciples that is seriously impacted. Check out what happens here in Jerusalem, verse 1 of chapter 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily dis distribution. And you can imagine that a church that's explosively growing, so many people, all kinds of different people coming into the church. One scholar estimates that the church had grown to more than 20,000 at this point. That's a whole lot of people. And Luke points out that there, there are two groups that he's talking about here, two groups. There's the Hellenists, and there are the Hebrews. Now, some have debated as to what those two descriptions actually refer to. I'm going to spare you the detailed analysis. For now, let's just say that the best understanding, the one that makes the most sense and that, that actually agrees with the larger context of Acts, is, both, is that both of these people groups, the Hellenists and the Hebrews, they're, they're both Jewish. The difference between them, the notable difference between them is their native language, the one that they spoke. See, at this point in Israelite history, there were those Jews, Jewish families who had lived in Palestine for generation after generation after generation. They had always been there, steeped in Jewish culture and everything Hebrew. They primarily spoke Aramaic and Hebrew. They were accustomed to reading the Hebrew scriptures. And at the same time, there were those families, if you've been to Sunday school, you might remember, families that had been part of this thing called the Diaspora. And they had been part of the Assyrian or the Babylonian exiles, families hauled off to foreign lands and lived there for generations and came to speak different languages, predominantly Greek, as their native language. Because of that, they didn't, they didn't read the Hebrew scriptures. Jewish, but we don't read the Hebrew scriptures. We read, we read the Greek translation, the Septuagint. Not only that, they, they go to, to Greek-speaking synagogue. And wouldn't you know it, those pure, pure Jewish Pharisees looked around at them. Oh, you're back now, huh? Yeah, you're not the same as us. Second-class Israelites. And so you have these two groups living side by side here in Jerusalem, but now brought together by the power of Jesus into one church. Is there a possibility for tension there? Yes, there is. Two groups together, now part of one church. And that brings us to the issue that was erupting. Clearly, at this point, the church had some basic organization it began with just Peter getting up there and proclaiming 
uh, the good news of Jesus, 3,000 people, but now it's grown and grown and grown. And that required some organization. As we already mentioned, people were selling off their property. They were bringing the money to the apostles, and so there was an orderly distribution of funds going on there. Now it becomes clear that there was a regular distribution of food set up as well for those who were not able to take care of themselves. It's actually a long-standing practice of Jewish tradition to care for widows, for orphans, for foreigners. Those who didn't have family members to take care of them, well, they relied upon the generosity of the community. But it makes very much sense to think that if there are Hellenist, Greek-speaking widows who have now returned to Jerusalem, and maybe had family who's still out there somewhere. They didn't have anybody, many of them. No means to, to take care of themselves. Completely cut off from those family members, the resources. And now they are completely dependent on the church. They were having a rough time. Especially if some of... The Hebrew speakers, the Aramaic speakers, looked at them and thought them lesser. Be it prejudice, be it oversight, whatever, Greek-speaking widows were not getting the care that they needed, at least not as much as that the Hebrew-speaking widows were getting. And that was a problem. More than just a problem, actually. It was a legitimate problem. If you're a parent, you know the difference between a legitimate problem and a non-legitimate Problem, right? Your son or daughter comes to you and they're bawling. They tell you that they need a band aid and you see that there isn't a scratch on them. So you, so you, so you kiss the owie and you, and you pat them on the head and you say, okay, you're, you'll be fine. On the other hand, you see them bleeding profusely from the forehead, a limb bent the way limbs aren't supposed to bend, or maybe a sharp object impaled in a portion of their body. You get on the phone with the paramedic stat, right? At least a good parent would. I'm not sure about myself, but I might still just give it a kid. There are all kinds of examples of quote-unquote problems that spring up in the church that really aren't problems at all. And we've heard some of those. Maybe we've had those issues ourselves. Maybe, maybe the music was too loud, or the coffee's too strong, the temperature's not right in the room. This wasn't like that. This was an issue worthy of attention. In fact, it's one that's actually directly related to the command that Jesus gave that we've actually talked about week after week after week here in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. If the church didn't get this right, not only was it going to create a massive divide between the Greek speakers and the non Greek speakers, the Hebrew speakers, but it was also going to directly violate Christ's command. And that's really going to hurt the church's witness to the larger community, to those on the outside looking in. Oh, oh, oh yeah, that's, that's church where they let those uh, Greek-speaking widows uh, starve while fattening up the, uh, the others with pita and baklava. Let's go to that church. Sounds good. No, this is a real threat. You might think that the 12 apostles, hearing of this, realizing, 
yeah, this, this is a major problem. How could this happen in our church? Really, this can't happen. You can imagine them just jumping right in, fixing the problem. I can imagine John just jumping up and saying, didn't Jesus say that the greatest commandment is be the servant of all? Let's go, everybody. Let's get in there. Let's serve some food. But that's not what happens. Verse 2 says, the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up pre the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Whoa. I'm not sure I belong at this church. What a bunch of cold-hearted, no good, unchristlike, holier-than-thou bums these guys are. How could they not care about these poor widows here? You would think that they should have been the first to step in and serve these neglected ladies. What is going on? But the reality was that they, it wasn't that they didn't care. The reality was that there was something that was so primary and so important that they could not neglect it for anything, at least not regularly. Well, it may have been tempting, it, it might be tempting for some pastors, some elders to drop what they're, what they're doing to go meet any and every need. It is so important that those who are called to preach the Bible do not allow other aspects of ministry to regularly, in an ongoing fashion, take away from that primary duty. Ephesians 4.12 tells us God specifically gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is why he gave them. In some churches, it's become very, very common for people to think that they, 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 gave, they give their, their tithes and their offerings so that, so that some of the paid staff, namely the pastors, get on with the work of ministry. They're, they're out there. They're doing it. We're paying you for it. Go do the job. Go do the job. This is how we make it happen. And I've known pastors who have spent their days cleaning the church facilities, mowing the lawns, working the homeless food distribution, leaving, leaving, leading all kinds of meetings, going to coffee, going to lunch, having people over for dinner, taking care of the finances, doing all sorts of other things. And I'm left wondering... How on earth did they find time to prepare to feed God's people on Sunday mornings? In a lot of cases, it's apparent that they don't. And what should be a, a, a deep dive into God's word to extract the treasure trove of riches to nourish their congregations, it turns out to be not much more than a, a, a collage of, of, of funny stories and cool illustrations and inspirational platitudes. Well, they should be serving up a five-course meal. All they have time to feed their people is nuggets and fries. That's not the way the Bible describes the job of a pastor or the job of an elder. No, they're to be the ones who devote themselves. 
to the study and the preaching of God's word and prayer for his people so that the people might be built up and equipped to do the work of ministry. Any money that they're, they're paid, it's just to allow them to, to focus all of or most of their energy, most of their attention on that really important task. But that doesn't mean that the needs of the church aren't legitimate, does it? It doesn't mean that, that the well-being of these widows is not an important concern. On the contrary, it simply means they have a certain role that they really need to be all about. In fact, if they neglected the, the duty to spiritually feed the flock, to get out there and physically feed stomachs, if you think about it, the whole thing may have collapsed. As the numbers of the church just continued to build and increase, there would eventually be no possible way that these 12 men could meet all those needs. No possible way. There's no way they're going to be able to distribute enough food. There's no way they're going to be able to keep up those one-on-one coffee appointments. And there's no way that they're going to be able to keep up tending to the facilities or handle the admin or the HR. I'm, I'm being anachronistic here, but you, but you get the point. If the church was going to be well cared for, the most important thing that these 12 apostles could do was preach the word and pray for the people. Preach and pray. Preach and pray. The two, the two go hand in hand. I like what John MacArthur says. Prayer and the ministry of the word are inseparably linked. Prayer must permeate a pastor's sermon preparation, or his sermons will be superficial and dry. He must also pray constantly that his people will apply the truths he teaches them. The man of God also must also pray that he would be a pure channel through which God's truth can flow to his congregation. To the young pastor Timothy, Paul wrote, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I can come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you, given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Boy, the command is clear, isn't it? Preach the Bible and pray. And that's exactly what the apostles do. And here's what they say in verse 3. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And this is where we see the organization of the church taken to a, a whole new level. It wasn't that they wanted to become uh, super organized and mega church or anything like that. It wasn't that the leadership thought it would be nice to have other people doing the service kind of work and to put a buffer in between them and the congregate. Keep those people over there and let them be served over there. We'll stay up in our high tower. And do no, it wasn't that. No, they led the church to expand its leadership to meet the needs of a growing congregation. The threat was real. 
They had a potential meltdown on their hands. And people were upset. Sides were being taken because real needs were not being met. And yet, thanks to the wisdom that God gave these leaders, they not only maintained their devotion to their primary responsibilities, but, but they care well for the people by enlisting others in the church. It wasn't just any Joe Schmo that they, uh, they called. The apostles knew that being called to a prominent position like this, position of leadership, being entrusted to care for God's people, serving as representatives of the most important organization on the planet, couldn't be given to just anyone. There are a few, few qualifications. Notice, first he says, among you. Among you. They had to be believers. They had to be committed to Christ's people. They, they were already members of that church. And so you don't look outside. You pick from people among you within the Christian community. They had to be of good reputation. That's the same qualification listed for elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. If they were going to be singled out from, from the rest for this special job, they need to exemplify what it means to be a Christian. Just don't go find you know, some, some guy over there who's willing to serve food. No, 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 no. Get the spiritually mature, the people of good reputation. They had to be full of the Spirit. Men whose lives gave everyone around them evidence that they didn't just know God's word, but that the Holy Spirit was actually working inside of them, producing a lifestyle that is consistent with God's word. It says wisdom. Wisdom was a requirement. These men were to know God's word and not only know God's word, but have the, the ability from what they knew of God's word to apply it in practical ways in various situations. So these men weren't to be constantly knocking on the apostles' door and say, hey, we've got another situation, what do you want me to do? No, no, no. They, they kind of got it. And they sought the Lord, and they could be confident that the decisions that they were making were in line with God's word and bringing glory to him, good to his people. Who were these men? Well, not much is listed about them other than Stephen. We'll talk about him in the next few weeks. Verse 5 tells us, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. The church said, this is good. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. You know, I've wondered a little bit about these names, not just how to pronounce them, but uh, why, why Luke doesn't give us more information. Maybe it's because Theophilus, the guy he's writing to, already was familiar with these men, and so he didn't need to go into it. But I actually think that the names are, are simply mentioned here out of honor for the vitally important role that these men played in the life of the early church. The vitally important role. You're at a, at a, a place in the church's history where this whole thing could have started melting down and dividing. And God raises up these seven men. And it makes a tremendous difference. Verse 7 tells us the result. And the word of God continued to increase. 
And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Over the years, I've served in all sorts of, of different ways in churches. This is not to toot my own horn. But, you know, I've, I've cleaned up trash. I've, I've planted plants. Senior pastor gets the youth pastor say, hey, we got some flowers we're going to plant out front. Okay, that's not what I plan to do today. Painting classrooms, being called on last minute, go to the store, pick up stuff for this picnic, fixing toilets, babysitting those booger-dripping kids for women's Bible study. That was me in high school. A lot of things that need to be done for the disciple-making work to go on in the church. A whole lot of it doesn't feel very glorious because it's not very glorious. In some ways, I can imagine waiting on tables, making sure that all these widows were, were fed, didn't feel like the most important job either. But the reality was that these men were not only meeting physical needs of God's people, but putting to rest a potentially disastrous divide in the church. And they were also enabling those who were called to preach and pray to be free to do their work. And because of their service, the church continues to grow by leaps and bounds. How has God gifted? How, how has God called you to not just be blessed by the church, but to bless and contribute to the growth and flourishing of his people. You see, no matter how minuscule or how lowly or how insignificant it may appear, never forget that every single one of us is here to play a vitally important role in the most important work, eternal work, on this planet. Let's not forget the words that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12. He said, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of where where would be the sense of hearing if the whole body were an ear where would be the sense of smell but as it is god arranged the members in the body each one of them as he chose if all were a single member where would the body be as it is there are many parts yet one body and so the eye can't say to the hand i have no need of you nor again that the, the head to the feet i have no need of you on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that, that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, 
but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Trouble, problems, threats, we have some of those. They come, they go. But as we faithfully work together to make sure that his word is held high and made known, and, and his people are being prayed for, and the needs of the body are being met, as we do these things, we will continue to shine bright the light of Jesus to a world that so desperately needs it. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the sometimes challenging messages it gives us. Thank you for what it reveals about us and our place and our significance and for this wonderful mission that you have called us to. Lord, there is no greater honor than being called into your service and into your church, serving your people for which the highest price in history was paid. None other than the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity of loving what you love and hold so precious. May we do so faithfully. May we do so diligently. May we do so joyfully, Lord, that there might be no division in the church, that the tactics of the enemy might again and again and again end up thwarted. We love you. We trust you. We look to you for the days ahead and praise you for what you have yet to do. In Jesus' name, amen.